that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it and, you know, f the EU. Here's them discussing strategies to work with the three main opposition figures. I don't think Cleach should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. In terms of him not going into the government, just let him sort of stay out and do his political homework and stuff. I'm just thinking in terms of sort of the process moving ahead, we want to keep the moderate Democrats together. The problem is going to be Tony Book and his guys. And, you know, I'm sure that's part of what Yanukovych is calculating on all of this. I think Yatz is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tony Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. I'm obviously not going to comment on private diplomatic conversations, uh, other than to say uh, it was pretty impressive trade. Hello, hello, hello. That was the Under Secretary of State for Europe, Victoria Newland, speaking to the US Ambassador to Ukraine in 2014 essentially planning who was going to take over the Ukrainian government after the coup. They had planned you know, another color revolution, which is essentially when the U.S., you know, use a, you know, somewhat legitimate, you know, movement or rally regarding another issue to try and cause the toppling of a government. So right now we have, for example, inflation in the U.K. is an issue. Imagine if... You know, we had rallies every day and demonstrations regarding inflation and cost of living. And then the U.S. come and try and use that to install Keir Starmer as president. Or Prime Minister, I guess, in our case. The U.S. does that a lot. So um, that tees up nicely what this episode is going to be about. It is the one-year anniversary of the Ukraine war. I think that was three days ago now, I think. 22nd of February. If I remember correctly, or was it yesterday, 24th? can't remember exactly. Anyway, there's been many pronouncements made by politicians and news media people and everyone that actually has any sort of opinion about it, given the historical, you know, relevance of it. I guess the first year into any war is a moment to pause and reflect and kind of take a look at where we are. Now, the unfortunate thing is that our media which I might get to later, has done a very poor job in educating the people about... Well, I wouldn't say they've done a poor job. They've done exactly what they're there for. <laughs> you know, if a fork is unable to scoop up water, you don't say it's doing a poor job. It's just doing what it was designed to do, which is not scoop up water. So our media... I think most people that have an understanding of how mass media works know that it's not actually there to inform people, which is why, you know, maybe... It's a public service of me to do more of these podcasts and do them more, more and more frequently because there's a lot going on around the world. So um, it's important that even just for myself and like, you know, future people, future etc. that I um, keep it updated and make sure people are kept abreast of 
what I like to think is actual truth. Now, I, I'm not going to say, obviously I have opinions and things like that, but generally speaking on my podcast, I just report, you know, accurate factual information that people can find for themselves. So it's not that the media don't have access to this information. It's just that they have a general bias towards a certain type of information. And so even information that doesn't necessarily, you know, disprove their position, but just, you know, gives a kind of broader perspective and context to the audience is deliberately ignored, silenced, looked away at, things like that. Because I guess... I'm not even sure who their target audience is in the media because I don't actually know who watches BBC. I suppose older people. My dad watches a lot of BBC, Sky News. But I haven't watched a lot of Sky News in the past year. But I would dare say that anyone watching Sky News over the past year would not seriously think they're having a real honest assessment of how the war's going, why the war started. Things like that are always relevant, you know, when you're talking about the one-year anniversary of a war. So... I'm going to be diving a little into that. So given the clip I just played, I think it's more accurate to say that this is actually the ninth year of the war. Well, depending on how you want to look at it, some some would say the war started even, you know, further back than that. But um, in terms of the recent history of the war, I think nine years ago was a very accurate place to start if you want to understand the war. And I'm just going to summarise again. I've done that in a previous podcast, but just, you know, to give broader, broader context in the, you know, anniversary kind of season that we we're in. Essentially, as that conversation I just played showed, the US was essentially designing, you know, planning a coup to remove the elected government of Ukraine and install, you know, Yatsenyuk, which shorts into Yats, which is the guy they were referring to. And um, I, I, it's very likely that Russia was the one that obtained this foot and this um, audio and leaked it to the public, which again, this is not relevant in regards to the contents of the of the leak itself. Is whether or not it's true, and you can see from the rest of the footage that she more or less, you know, admitted that that was her. So you know, in the audio when they're talking about fuck the EU and you know we're gonna install these people, what essentially they did was they, they installed a bunch of. Ukrainian right-wing nationalists to the government of Ukraine. These people have a very deep hatred of Russia. Um, again, I don't understand enough about their kind of reasons behind that. I suppose you could say maybe the Irish have a deep hatred of the British generally. Um, so maybe they wouldn't like it if maybe Ireland and Britain were getting closer and closer again, given the history. So, you know, let's just use that example, you know, for now. And essentially... These people started a kind of cultural cleansing, they would call it, of Ukraine to rid it of Russian influence. So initially, Russia, Russian was Ukraine's second language, so they, they removed that. And they started to marginalise the ethnic Russian population of Ukraine. So you have to understand that, historically, obviously, Ukraine and Russia were in the Soviet Union. And while they might have separate identities, the same way, you know, in Britain, English and, you know, Scottish and Welsh are different identities, you know, fundamentally they still belong to one general country, the United Kingdom. But the the ties to between Russia and Ukraine are very similar in that way. So of course they have their different identities going from, you know, way back when when there was no Soviet Union and you had the Russian Empire and, you know, things like that, but <clears throat> they still have a very shared common culture. And so 
I guess the nationalists are not big fans of that and so they started to marginalise the Russian population and there was a lot of violent attacks going on against the ethnic Russian population which are in the south, I believe, of Ukraine. So areas like Donetsk and Lugansk, which I'm going to get to later, which kind of signified the start of the war when they declared their independence from Ukraine. And obviously it signified the start of the war, but the war was basically brought to you know, the Western audience lexicon, as it were, even though that war has been happening for a while. So this kind of caused, I don't know, some panic in, in Russia, because if you understand the kind of positioning of Ukraine, Ukraine sits between Russia and Poland, for example, which is a NATO member. So NATO, which was formed in the 1950s, I would say, maybe 60s, early 60s, was formed essentially to try and, you know, create a European alliance against the Soviet Union. And when the US had this, you know, pathological obsession with, you know, East versus West, communism versus capitalism. And so NATO being a military organization was essentially armed to try and, you know, fight Russia. And that's why the Germany was split between, you know, the victors of World War Two, you know, East Germany and West Germany. East Germany being, you know, part of the Soviet Union and West Germany being you know, part of the West, as it were, in quotes. But essentially, when the Soviet Union collapsed and Germany was reunified and the Berlin Wall came down, part of the kind of guarantees that Russia was given is that NATO will not move closer towards its border, given that NATO is, you know, Russia would consider NATO to be a hostile alliance. You wouldn't want a hostile alliance to be close to your border. Now, as a personal layman, you know, me being the, not the 4D chess thinking military expert that in the Russian and the American armies. I always think if countries like Russia and the United States have nuclear weapons, what does it matter if someone is right next to your border? You know, they can't invade you because they know that you have nuclear weapons and you can use them and you know they have nuclear weapons and they can use them. So naturally it should just be a situation where it doesn't really matter how close you are to me, like proximity wise. It's not like a kind of guerrilla warfare where you start like, you know, lobbing grenades over the border and things like that so you know i can see why it would be irritating but in a kind of country sense i don't really know how you know and why either side does it like what does the u.s stand to gain if they encircle russia with military bases it's not like they're going to invade russia they can't do that and they i'm sure they know that then again there might be some lunatics in the u.s security establishment who probably don't know that and genuinely believe that they can actually defeat russia again you have to ask yourself the question, what would be the point of them actually invading Russia and fighting Russia? Like, who's calling for that? Like, what, is, <laughs> what does that do for the world in any way? Like, no one knows. Like, very confusing. But again, these are kind of great minds we have leading our countries, I suppose. So essentially, NATO has been moving closer and closer to Russia's border. Now, I guess I just said, you know, I don't see the relevance of it. In terms of geopolitics and, you know, the great 3D, 4D Game of Thrones chess that these people play, that's actually very, very aggressive. So I don't know if any of you remember or learn about the Cuban Missile Crisis in school. Essentially what happened was the Soviet Union was going to place nuclear weapons in Cuba, which is about 90 miles away from Miami, you know, central United States or mainland United States. And so the United States threatened to bomb Cuba if the U.S., if the, the Soviet Union put their nuclear weapons there. So you can imagine a situation where Cuba is 90 miles away on an island and the US were threatening to bomb Cuba if 
Russia placed weapons there, but US is moving their alliance right to a country that borders Russia. Like, and, and the border is not exactly, you know, it borders over a thousand kilometers long. So you can imagine, again, if you're one of those people that cares about this sort of thing, being in the leadership of Russia, how you feel about this kind of situation. So this caused Russia to kind of, well, I mean, Russia claims that the people of Crimea, which is a kind of area between Ukraine and Russia, that's, that basically has an ethnic population of Russia, and it was actually Russian until after World War Two, uh, when Ukraine became a country, and Ukraine Crimea was given to Ukraine, even though the population there clearly identifies with Russia. Even if you look at polls, um, opinion polls from before the Crimean reunification vote happened to to rejoin Russia, um, they were you know fifty, sixty, seventy percent upwards in support of rejoining Russia. So this is something that's the important context because this is the kind of first move that people in the West point to as Russia's, you know, aggression towards Ukraine. So there was a vote held in Crimea after the coup, which the US orchestrated, you know, if you listen to that clip above. And they voted to rejoin Russia. But Ukraine saw this as, you know, Russia just basically seizing Ukraine's territory and they didn't really recognize the legitimacy of the vote and so they started to attack Crimea and then Russia you know went in there to defend them as they say so Russia built a land bridge that joins Crimea you know to mainland Russia and things like that and the Ukrainian starts to attack and continue to marginalize the people in southern Ukraine who again are ethnic Russians so people in Kherson, Donetsk, Lugansk those kind of areas and so what happened was these people started to take up arms and basically defend themselves and fight back. Again, they said they've defended themselves as opposed to the Ukrainians who call it terrorism, whatever you want to say. And so there's been a war going on since 2014, which has been recorded, you know, by the UN. They record casualties, they record fatalities. But the West doesn't didn't really, like, I'm sure no one really heard about it in the news. And in fact, I barely knew much about it until this war started and I started to, you know, pay attention and watch the news and, well, not the news like Sky News and BBC. They're not going to tell you that kind of stuff, but you know what I mean. And essentially, there's been a series of agreements between Russia and Ukraine regarding these areas. So initially, obviously, these people wanted to secede from Ukraine and become their own country, slash join Russia, things like that. But the Ukrainians were like, no, that's not going to happen. And so they had reached agreements to essentially say, okay, stop shelling these because they've been shelling those areas. And, you know, this place is largely civilian population. They did have like an army and, you know, uh, like, you know, private military contractors fighting and defending them but ostensibly you know it's basically like let's say for example what's happening in nigeria where you know we have an insurgency Boko Haram and um iswap and things like that so the nigerian government is essentially fighting a war within its own borders which you're gonna have stuff where sometimes you drop a bomb and you drop it on civilians some of it, it was i'm sure a lot of it was intentional regarding ukraine but i guess we'll never know how much of it was intentional and how much of it was genuinely fighting these people i don't know but these agreements were called Minsk 1 and Minsk 2 because they were agreed in Minsk. I think Minsk is in Belarus, I believe. But um, they were agreed in Minsk. And um, essentially, what was meant to happen was that... Yeah, Minsk is the capital of Belarus. Wow, I'm pretty good at geography. <laughs> um, so what was meant to happen was the Ukrainians were meant to stop shelling, you know, stop the hostilities and respect the kind of... Um, independence of these places so not not let them secede and like give them independence fully independent but 
respect this accession. Essentially, these agreements were ignored. There was another one, Minsk too, that was also ignored. And this has been happening for years. And again, unbeknownst to us, because I guess it didn't really concern the UK and the US, or maybe because, again, our media doesn't do a very good job of informing on these issues. They had um, started, obviously, the, you know, there was a war going on, you know, over 10,000 fatalities had been recorded by the UN, actually. So, and a lot of them were on the um, the independent republic side, so Donetsk and Lugansk. And um, the Russian parliament <laughs> had been essentially getting very angry with Putin and telling him to intervene and basically defend these people because they're ethnic Russians. You know, and Putin has basically been, you know, playing the whole diplomacy game of trying to, you know, negotiate with the West and things like that. But they stopped listening to him. <laughs> like, they, they basically wasn't taking him seriously. And that's part of maybe why I should, the broader context I should give about. I know I said, you know, as a person, why would you care if these people are right on your borders? Because, you know, you can just nuke them and they can nuke you and everyone will be, you know, everyone will be dead. But I guess there's a part of you know, diplomatic relations that's about respect, which I guess even as a human being, you can understand that if someone is doing stuff to antagonise you, even if it's not causing immediate discomfort, the fact that they they think they can keep doing it, you know, it's enough reason for you to be like, you know what, I'm not going to take this anymore because now you're, you know, taking a piss and disrespecting me. So I guess, you know, the kind of dick-sized comparing that goes on in, in real life can, is not, Western leaders are not immune to that, that sort of thing, I suppose. So in December, Putin actually proposed a very comprehensive plan to try and resolve this issue and he he essentially said like okay you know you know look this has been going on for a long time you guys are not listening to me let me you know let, let, let's let's talk essentially because again that's his that's his style to talk to settle things but i feel like the kind of current leadership in the u.s i mean it didn't help that you had you know president trump which was the president before biden being accused of being a russian agent I'm going to get to that shortly, that that meant that he had to be a lot more bellicose and a lot more antagonistic towards Russia because anything he did to try and negotiate with Russia will be seen as, you know, this is this is because he paid you and things like that. So I don't know if that was designed or not. Uh, I guess if Hillary Clinton won, maybe that wouldn't have happened, but I'm, I'm not sure if that was, like, planned or if that was just, you know, coincidence that, you know, they accused him of, you know, being paid by Russia, but then it happened to be that Russia was the one in this issue and things like that so um anyway the plan was rejected and this is when the russian troops started amassing at the border of ukraine and you know again i wasn't really paying much attention at that time but you know the u.s was releasing intelligence reports saying russia's going to invade ukraine russia's going to invade ukraine and you know no one really listened and no one believed it in fact even the ukrainian president <laughs> Zelensky, he even he said that's not going to happen they're not going to invade us now what we now know is that Ukrainians were actually going to invade Donetsk and Lugansk. They were essentially just amassing troops on the border on their side and waiting to invade themselves. So, very interesting. I don't know if Russia was aware of this or not. Maybe I think they, I'm sure they must have been. They have enough intelligence, you know, gathering capabilities to know about this sort of thing. So, eventually, Putin invaded, obviously, which is now the anniversary to the war. People are, I wouldn't say celebrating, remembering right now. And essentially, from what we now know, Putin didn't invade. Obviously, the rhetoric in the West is that this is part of his plan to conquer Europe and, you know, take over Ukraine, then Poland, then here, then here, then, you know, like some kind of Hitler type of um, ambition. But if you actually look clearly at what happened, 
Putin invaded Ukraine with a very limited number of of troops. He only used about twenty percent of Russia's actual active troop members, and this was because he essentially wanted to do that to basically, I think they call it the bloody nose strategy, which is like, if you and someone are gonna fight and you kind of give them a jab and you know, they start to bleed, they might realize that maybe this is not a fight they actually want to do, and they would just kind of you know, stop essentially. So that's basically what Putin wanted to do. He wanted to invade in such a way that. It would essentially compel Ukraine to come to the negotiating table. So that's why he invaded in a very small-scale way. And in fact, even the New York Times, even they kind of... That's the funny thing about mainstream media. Sometimes they do tell the truth, but you have to dig a bit deep to find it. So there was an article written in the New York Times, which if anyone's actually listening, actually wants to see it, because they disprove it, I can actually find it for you, in which they actually quietly said in one of the articles, probably buried somewhere in like, you know, paragraph 10 where most people have stopped reading they actually said they actually quite like the u.s has been surprised by how tepid russia's has been like russia was basically holding back so essentially the u.s was saying i mean if we did this kind of thing this is not how we'll be doing it we'll be doing it a lot more brash you know blowing everything up targeting buildings but putin actually gave um orders to his troops to be very very careful and to not target civilian infrastructure and to not basically cause unnecessary loss of life, which is why the Russian casualties and fatalities were so high, because instead of them just doing what the US would do, which is like, if you invaded a place that's, you know, densely populated like that, you just bomb everything, you know, bomb the whole place, take everything to the ground, you know, they were actually going like, almost like a guerrilla warfare, like, street to street style combat, so that made their troops a lot more vulnerable, and, you know, they suffered heavy casualties, I think they've they've suffered over 10,000 um, casualties to this date, which if you compare it to, think, let's say for example the US, you know, in in Vietnam, the US was in Vietnam for about over ten years and they lost fifty eight thousand. So for Russia to have been in, um, about fifty thousand, I think the US lost. For Russia to have been in Ukraine for about a year, and to have lost, you know, over ten thousand already, <laughs> that's a very very high number, especially given that they have you know way more capabilities than the Ukrainians. So um, this is, again, more evidence that it wasn't done to, you know, destroy Ukraine. It was done to essentially compel them to negotiate the table. And it worked. I don't know if you guys remember when the war started, again, if you were following it closely, there was times where, you know, Russia and Ukraine was actually meeting. And, you know, they'll have meetings and everyone's like, OK, we're looking forward to a tentative deal, etc., etc. And, you know, a peace deal looked like it was going to happen. So we now know from you know reports that we've gotten again since then which again the mainstream media will not cover because this actually makes our country the uk looks pretty bad you would think you know we're trying to sue for peace of course not but essentially though russia and ukraine had agreed a peace deal and it was blocked by the west and this has been confirmed by multiple sources now and the latest of which was the person who actually brokered the deal, which was the former Prime Minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett. So I'm actually going to play basically a translation because he did a he did an interview in uh, Hebrew, I think it, it was, um, basically saying the same thing, which was like they agreed a deal and, you know, the West said no, essentially, because, again, the West has bigger designs on trying to destroy Russia and bleed Russia and essentially create kind of a war of attrition type situation where Russia is, you know, spending forces, you know, losing life and things like that. But um, here's the interview. I'm going to continue after this. Each leader has their way. 
Boris Johnson adopted an aggressive line. Macron and Scholz were more pragmatic. Biden was both. And that's it. I think there was a legitimate decision by the West to keep striking Putin. Anything I did was coordinated down to the last detail with the US, Germany and France. They, and Bennett means the Western leaders here, they blocked it and I thought they're wrong. I mean, I would, I would say most people that know enough about international relations know that <laughs> when bad stuff is happening in the world, our countries are usually never on the side of, you know, the positive things. So trying, obviously, you know, it's a year anniversary into the war. We now know from that, like, the war didn't have to go on a year. The war could have been over after the first two months. You know, can you imagine, you know, the oil prices, the kind of hunger around the world, increased food prices that we're still suffering as a result? Inflation, all of this did not have to happen. It just, you know, it could have went a very different way if the kind of brain-dead leaders in the UK and the US basically supported peace. But, of course, they didn't. Very, very typical. So, you know, we move on to where we are now. And, you know, I guess Putin has kind of decided that he can't negotiate with these people. And so he's just going to try and force Ukraine, you know, to surrender. Because they, they were not going to surrender. And initially, when the war first started, you had a situation where the US was very reticent to actually send weapons to Ukraine. Because <laughs> I don't think, um, obviously, we see it in the news every day. I know UK promises $3 billion to help supply Ukraine with tanks. And, you know, US promise. I don't think people, you know, maybe young people like us, I don't think we understand how provocative it is when a country is fighting another country and you're sending weapons to the other country. Even if it's in the name of, you know, so-called defense, this is extremely provocative. In fact, I would say under the, you know, the kind of understanding of how war goes, Russia is very well within its rights to, you know, think of the U.S. as a participant in the war and act accordingly. Like, that's how the U.S. would treat it. If, for example, the U.S. was fighting some kind of, you know, warlord or kind of, you know, Niger or something, and Nigeria started to army Niger, the US would bomb us, like, 100%. Like, that's not even a question. Because, you know, they would say, rightly so, oh, we're part of the war now, clearly. <laughs> and the US has been doing this, and they've sent, you know, over $50 billion. I'm sure a lot of that was not actually money that they've received now. Essentially, it's just a boon for their defense industry of tanks and, you know, you know, um, javelin missiles and tow missiles, anti-tank missiles. <laughs> extremely provocative which you have to understand these are the people that have the two countries that have the biggest nuclear arsenal in the world and one is essentially fueling a guerrilla fight against the other one which started again nine years ago when the u.s you know deposed the ukrainian president and was kind of hell-bent on getting the uh, ukrainians to join nato and it's it's kind of incredible that the media doesn't consider even though i'm sure they know the answer to this what would happen? Can you imagine what would happen if the Chinese tried to get Mexicans to join a kind of anti-capitalist alliance that has a military and does military training and drills and stuff like that? The US, this would be totally unacceptable to the US. So you have people now on, on, on the news pretending as though, oh, but why can't Ukraine join NATO? Ukraine's a sovereign country. They can do what they want. <laughs> I mean, let's use a local example. Think of what happened when the Scots, the Scottish... We're going to de declare independence from Britain. How did, how, did, how did our parliament... Did we say, well, Scotland's a country. They can do what they want. That's not how politics works, ladies and gentlemen. That's, that's just not how it works, okay? 
things don't just, I don't know why, things just don't work that way. So, the idea that Ukraine can just join a hostile military alliance to Russia, and Russia is just going to sit back and be like, well, okay, you're a sovereign country, you can do what you want. That's, you know, these people in the news, they know that's not how the world works. So, you know, again, this is typical from them, I suppose, you know, they don't have much brain cells. But that's that's kind of where we are right now. And essentially, Ukraine is getting destroyed. That's just the sum of it. Initially, when the war started, you have this kind of, <laughs> I don't know if you call it uh, optimistic propaganda or just kind of, um. I don't know, morale lifting lies that was being told by the, you know, by the, by the press about, oh, Ukraine is, you know, they're, you know, they're pushing Russia back, they're fighting, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, again, they fought very bravely, I'm sure, but there was no way Russia could lose, like, that's just a fact, like, everyone, even people that don't really know much about military affairs would probably look at them and be like, Russia, Ukraine, you know, Russia cannot lose, <laughs> yeah, they can't lose, like, they, you know, their capabilities, the kind of money they have, the kind of, you know, you know, come on, it's just not apples to apples. It would be, again, like, the US fighting, I don't know, any, I suppose, like most countries in the world. It's not really much of a competition, is it? Like, it's just going to, eventually, no matter what happens initially, eventually, the outcome is only going to be one way. So, um, it's unfortunate because the kind of loss of life, and this is the kind of war where we've seen TikToks and things like that, and I've seen some very gruesome footage of, you know, people being bombed and dead bodies and things like that and it kind of makes you realize that you know when when they say for example 100,000 dead like that's a that's 100,000 human beings human like human lives that were lost needlessly because one country the united states decides they want to play some kind of live action role play of game of thrones and essentially just send people to slaughter because of Again, God knows what. Because if, like I said, if Ukraine joins NATO, what are you gonna do? Like, you want to place weapons there to threaten Russia for what exactly? Like, it, it makes no sense. So, these are the kind of again psychopaths that we have running our countries. But essentially, where we are right now is Ukraine is basically more or less destroyed. Russia is planning a major offensive to um. To basically end the war decisively, essentially. Ukraine is on their last legs. The EU has said um, they're down to, like, maybe weeks of ammunition left. You know, they have barely any soldiers left. Obviously, morale is incredibly low. You know, large swaths of their territory is under Russian occupation. It's just not great. It's just not great. But more importantly, we're in a situation where the two biggest nuclear-armed powers are now essentially at war with each other so because you know most of the weapons ukraine using now came from the u.s so that's essentially the u.s's war with with russia essentially so this is this is quite tragic because nuclear war seems closer than ever and um the more the u.s continuing their aggression towards russia the more russia is going to realize that maybe you know and again i would i would like to think that these leaders surely don't really think, you know, they haven't even entertained the possibility of a nuclear war because if that's the case, then that's the kind of lunacy we're dealing with and maybe say something about our culture that we have leaders that are genuinely thinking about how to end civilization. Like, that is quite stunning, but it might be where we are right now. We actually had some statements that was made by the Malaysian prime minister and 
I guess he's a politician, a sober mind. So um. This this is something he was saying regarding, you know, nuclear war. He said, regarding inflation and things like that, it's important that the country begin to prepare contingency plans to deal with what may be the beginning of World War Three. So again, this is a sober minded person who's looking at the situation rationally and saying, you know, this literally could lead to another world war, which is something I'm sure none of us thought we'd ever see in our lifetimes ever again when we learn about World War One and Two in school and you know, if you had to, if someone asked you right now, like, why, why did World War One start? You probably don't even know. Like, you're not even sure. You're like, I'm, I'm sure we learned it in school, but some guy shot some archduke, and then this country that declared war in this country, and this country declared war in this country. And you're like, did we really need millions of people to die for you guys to just like negotiate and get to a settlement like you eventually did? I mean, you would think we're better than that now. You would think so, but clearly not. So um. A lot. Of, well, one thing you've seen recently in the kind of um coverage of the one year anniversary is that Russia attacked Ukraine unprovoked. That is not true. <laughs> the, the The war in Ukraine was massively provoked. In fact, if you actually look at the analysis soberly, many people would argue that's literally what the US was trying to get Russia to do, and it was only a matter of time before Russia just responded. If the US was the one that, you know, was being provoked in the way Russia was since essentially 1992, when, you know, the Soviet Union kind of disbanded and NATO started to move close to their borders. The US would have invaded um, Ukraine eh, many, many, many years ago. So the war was not unprovoked. It was massively provoked. And it's almost, you know, inevitable because if you look at what analysis, you know, and, and like, kind of uh, the people who were analyzing it said years ago they were saying these policies that the u.s were pursuing could only lead to one thing even the u.s ambassador to ukraine said that previously like these policies that we're doing are essentially going to end in ukraine being invaded by russia because it was only a matter of time but i guess the u.s thought they could bully russia and you know things like that so you know that's kind of where we are right now lately actually the chinese also developed a peace proposal, which I guess now we now know the US is not interested in any sorts of peace. Like, they, they're just not. So given the one-year anniversary, the, the Chinese kind of released their kind of plan for peace and they released a 12-point proposal. And, you know, one of it was... You know, I'm not going to list all 12, but essentially the highlights were season hostilities, you know, resuming peace talks. They kind of took a jab at the US by referring to abandoning the Cold War mentality, which is true. That is the, the key reason for why we are where we are. You know, the US bears a large part of the blame. And as much as none of us like to see war, it, it must be pointed out that the war didn't start a year ago. The war started many, many years ago when the US, you know, orchestrated the coup continue to move NATO to you know Ukraine's border ultimately essentially wanted Ukraine to join NATO which they, they knew the Russians would never stand for so that's kind of where we are right now but I'm pretty sure the Chinese um, peace proposal will be rejected out of hand you've actually already had the US um, the US Secretary of State essentially said don't be flattered by talks of a ceasefire and peace talks so even when ukraine is probably down to five men willing to fight i'm sure the u.s would still say no 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 let's keep fighting you must keep defending yourselves and things like that so um 
this is where we are right now with the war unfortunately um we can only grieve and bleed for the ordinary ukrainian citizens who don't care anything about this four-dimensional game of thrones and will just like nothing more than just to live a normal life you know children going to school people going to work pensioners enjoying their pensions and things like that but sadly they happen to live in an area where the u.s has grand plans and designs and so they are suffering right now because of the kind of 4D chess being played above their heads, which they have no interest in doing. But this is the kind of stuff you expect from the so-called superpower and world power of our time. Um, just pointless destruction. And I, I think the last person I have to you know refer to, last last thing I have to mention in this is the role of the media. It's important to mention the role of the media because none of this can happen well i won't say none of it but a lot of this could not happen without the complicity of the media you know when you have bad stuff happening think about all the things the media has been able to whip us whip, whip people up against like party gates and things like that of course those parties happened already but the reason why those people even though i, I didn't really care about party gate but the reason why those people were able to face some sort of justice is because the public was alerted to it. So there's an understanding there that you can't get away with this if the public actually knows what you're doing. But our media never actually informs people correctly. So, for example, the fact that our prime minister flew to Ukraine, we now know why he flew there. At the time, we just thought he was doing that to show solidarity with the Ukrainians and things like that. But he actually flew there to essentially say, you know, do not end this war, do not seek peace. That's something that's you know would make people very angry if they heard about it now, because they would start to understand that all the suffering caused by you know the massive increase in oil prices we had, we had diesel selling at one pound ninety nine, one pound ninety eight, you know even now diesel hasn't really recovered because it's still selling around, you know one seventy, which is much higher than it was before the war. All of that would not have happened if the war had already been ended, you know. The, the people that have been stopping and blocking the peace has been our own governments. Now, a lot of people do not know that. I'm pretty sure, and I'm, you know, if that was brought to their attention, that would change the way they feel massively about the war. So even when you have a poll right now that says, you know, 60% of people, 70% of people continue, you know, agree that we should continue to support Ukraine. You know, people might feel that, you know, generally because they genuinely think, you know, war is horrible. But how much of them will feel the same way if they found out that, you know, we blocked, I say we, I mean, our, our leaders blocked the peace. Like, you know, they, they would say, no, put an end to this. Like, why, why are you letting people die just so you can have some kind of geopolitical tussle with Russia? So, you know, the role of the media is, is massively important. You know, we've had at least more than one source refer to the fact that these peace proposal that you know the russia and ukraine agreed was blocked by the west and i haven't found it anywhere on, on mainstream media yeah you know part of the reason why we're so close to nuclear war is because you had situations where the u.s removed themselves from treaties that it signed with russia to reduce the nuclear stockpiles the inf treaty which trump withdrew from i didn't see that covered anywhere as a kind of serious threat to peace. 
So now Russia's withdrawn from another nuclear treaty, the START Treaty. Now you see that covered as, oh, this is part of their, you know, evil plan to destroy the whole world. When, you know, the US was the one that kept on continuously, unilaterally withdrawing from from, from peace treaties. So it, it, it's really sad that, you know, the media behaves in this way because, like I said, I genuinely believe these things cannot happen if they're accurately informing people about what's going on. But they just refuse to do that. So we, we are where we are. I'm going to leave it there. Um, I'm going to conclude by saying, obviously, war is a monstrosity. War is a tragedy. It's something that should always, always be prevented. You would think the kind of advances we've made as human beings in our civilization, technologically, things like that, we'll be able to get to a stage where we can talk to each other and we're not letting you know, pointless ideological differences cause such you know, an, destruction and annihilation. Um, I actually remembered when I was you know, making this podcast also that the Ukrainian president Zelensky right now actually won by 70%. He won 70% of the votes in the presidential elections in 2019. And his platform was based on reaching a peace agreement with Russia. So even the Ukrainian citizens, which is quite fashionable in the West now to use them as the reason why we must continue to supply Ukraine with weapons and, you know, as though those people haven't suffered enough, obviously. Um, the people that, you know, they've, their name is invoked to excuse the current proxy war. They voted for Zelensky because he promised to reach a peace agreement with Russia. And Zelensky even said he was willing to sacrifice his popularity because being antagonistic towards Russia is only popular in Ukraine amongst the very far right. And obviously the United States supported elements and the United States itself that actually wants to use Ukraine as a pawn in its um, four-dimensional chest that I keep referring to. So that's where we are right now hopefully the war is over soon um it essentially looks like russia is trying to reach a position where they can negotiate after they've essentially secured all they wanted to secure in ukraine and so um i hope that doesn't lead to more bloodshed and more but i mean inevitably i'm sure it will it seems like the supply of weapons has more or less been i won't say paused but slowed down by the west given that Ukraine doesn't even have enough military people to actually fight the war anymore, so they probably don't have much of a choice in that regard. Um, so yeah, hope you guys have enjoyed this. Uh, I'll try and do this more often. Again, I am it's kind of my fault really that I don't do it often enough because I do enjoy doing this and I enjoy kind of talking to people about, you know, just reporting the facts in the world. It would be a lot more enjoyable if I did it with someone else, but um, I don't know if I can find a consistent podcast point. I don't think many young people like myself are that interested in politics to have. But I mean, even just general social issues, which are less of my interest, but it would still be good to have someone to bounce ideas off and just to talk about it with. So um, I'll leave it there and uh, see you in the next one. I'll speak to you in the next one. This is audio only, isn't it?